Welcome, everyone, to American Girls. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. Today, we have a very special guest, Leah Souter, a scholar of Holocaust literature, specifically working on and thinking about children's literature and how we might tell stories in an ethical and you know, kind and compassionate way about the Holocaust. We're so, so excited to bring you this conversation. We talked about any number of things, including Number of the Stars, um, her thesis work, her current research, and what Molly might have known about the Holocaust. And, you know, did she traumatize me by revealing the plot of The Boy with the Striped Pajamas? Yes. Um, but she taught us so, so much, and it really helped us put the Molly books in perspective. So we're so, so grateful for her coming on and sharing her knowledge. So without further ado, let's go right to our conversation. So we are so thrilled to have with us today Leah Sauter, who is currently a graduate student studying Holocaust history at the University of Haifa, and she's writing a master's thesis on ghosts and Holocaust literature. Leah actually reached out to us years ago, so shout out to you for being a longtime listener, uh, with some really fascinating material culture history related to women. And we archived that email, we kept it with a big, um, you know, bright flag so that we wouldn't forget to come back to it. And we're very thrilled to have you with us here today. I'm so happy to be here. So we're going to talk a little bit about your background and kind of what got you interested in what you study. And honestly, the things that we're going to talk about today, so many people have reached out to us to ask questions such as, what would someone like Molly McIntyre really have known being a girl in 1944? Yeah. Yeah, and that's a it's a really interesting question and it comes down to a lot of kind of our base myths as a culture. Um I got really interested in Holocaust history because that's my family history. Um my family came from um Poland, from a town in Poland called Gier. Um and they came before and during the First World War. Um, And there was a lot of silence about the people who were left behind. Um, My grandmother was born in the 1930s, and she didn't really relate to Molly in any particular way. Um, There was a lot more kind of fear and silence in her household than there was in Molly's. And the truth is a girl like Molly, who's non-Jewish, who lives in an area where she probably has never met anyone who's Jewish, might not have known a lot. Hmm. But that isn't because the information wasn't out there. It's because of what Americans chose to listen to. Can you say a little bit more about that? I think that's a really interesting piece because I think when we were reading the Molly books and doing those episodes, I think some listeners thought, well, we weren't being fair to Molly, that maybe there was all this information out there and she just chose not to take it in at the newsreels at the movies, for example. So can you kind of talk a little bit about that, how the information was out there, but it wasn't getting through? Yes. So what's one study I have done is in looking at newspapers that were circulated within the Jewish community itself, and particularly in Yiddish. Um, 
and comparing that to what was available to mainstream American audiences, my kind of test subject was the New York Times. Um, the Times had actually unsubscribed from the major Jewish wire service in 1937, and most other major mainstream news sources followed. Um, Jewish sources were at the time seen as partisan because the U.S. was trying to stay out of the war. And if you're reporting on a genocide, that seems like a good reason to join the war. And so these Jewish newspapers um, had significant information reported from the start. Um, they used networks that mainstream American news sources wouldn't use, such as the Jewish underground in Europe um, and the Polish underground as well. Um, and they were reporting in detail on the rise of anti-Semitism, on the creation of concentration camps, on events like Kristallnacht in great detail during the 1930s. And then as the genocide began in 1940, 1941, they were reporting on the earliest massacres. They had reports of Bobby Yar, which was one of the most significant shootings of Jews. It was about 30,000 people in Kiev over the course of about three days. And they had a report from the JTA, which is the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, um, a wire service in most um, American Jewish newspapers within a month. Um, and then the creation of death camps where people were being killed by gas was also reported quite quickly, as were mass deportations from large ghettos. These were, in many ways, permeable places. There were people in the underground in Poland getting information directly from death camps. Um, there was a great deal of information coming out of ghettos. There were writings. There were even people who um, were able to escape these places um, and were able to get information to not only the allied governments, but to the allied news sources. But the main people who were reporting on those news sources in those news sources were in Jewish sources. Um, so there were two very influential men who reported um, the deportations of uh, Jews from major ghettos um, and the killings in death camps. And the first man was Jan Karski, who was not Jewish, he was Polish, um, and he was working for the government in exile and went from the government in exile in London to um, D.C. to various places in um, Nazi-occupied Poland. He um, was able to extract information on the liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto, um, on the existence of Treblinka, which was the second largest death camp next to Auschwitz. Um, and he was able to get this information directly to President Roosevelt. And nothing really happened. 
it wasn't reported widely in American newspapers that weren't Jewish, and the information was in fact actively suppressed. The same thing happened to a man named Shmuel Ziegelboim, who was Jewish, who was a colleague of Karski in the Polish government. And he was able to learn of the brutal culling of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And he was able to go through the underground and into England and made a heart-wrenching report to the British government, which mostly wasn't paid attention to, which wasn't reported in the Times. And ultimately, he felt that his actions were so unlistened to that he actually um, took his own life. Wow. It's kind of stunning to hear the weight of how much information was out there and then the choice to suppress it. And I think having been to places like the FDR Presidential Library, having read quite a few histories of his administration and of the war itself, I feel like this suppression is not really within the histories of World War II that we have. Yeah, absolutely. It's mostly documented in Holocaust literature. Um, It's definitely seen as kind of outside what is considered World War II history. So you're you're pointing to something that I think is endemic in the Molly books, which is her setting is World War II versus her setting is, you know, part of a mass genocide that's that's occurring. And you wrote this brilliant thesis that you very generously shared with us. And as part of that thesis, you open with an anecdote from Mr. Rogers and this idea that there are really difficult subjects that young people encounter through their lives. And there are also difficult subjects that people encounter because they are told about them or there's an educational piece, right? It's from history. So they need to be told. And you have elsewhere in the thesis, this really, I think, touching anecdote about, um, sort of a way to introduce the Holocaust in some stories is a child touching a grandparent's arm in in the way that for a generation of people, there's this actual tactile living reminder of this event and that that's going away. Yeah, it's we're at a really precarious point in Holocaust education because in museums, even in schools, we've relied extraordinarily heavily on survivors, Mm. um, which is kind of in some ways revolutionary. We're not focusing on the, you know, big figures. We're focusing on individuals. But that's also extremely fragile because human lifetimes have a limit. And the Holocaust is beginning to be further and further away. The people who are still living are more likely to have been young children. They're more likely to have survived in hiding. Um, They're more likely to have survived via something like the kinder transport. Um, So their stories are just extremely different than the stories that were being told um, 20, 30 years ago. And there's just fewer people. I know in the Jewish community, the coronavirus pandemic has had this other layer of it's taking away survivors. Mm. And consequently, a lot of Jewish communities have been um, focusing on getting survivors vaccinated. There was actually a program 
think in Philadelphia, I don't want to say, I don't want to say the wrong place, but I think in Philadelphia recently, um, through a synagogue, um, and those, and they were survivors in Israel were in the first groups being vaccinated because it's this incredible fear that we'll lose them again. Just a, a quick comment on that. It's so sort of disturbing to me when when you say that because I was reading reports um, not far from where I live. There was um, a lot of cases in a, a veteran's home and a lot of the people who died were World War II vets. And I'm, I'm just struck by the similarity again of like, I have not heard of what you're talking about at all. Like I have not heard of this problem within the survivor community, but the local media has been talking a lot about World War II vets and I'm sort of like ashamed, right? It's like, it's happening again. Like my bubble, I didn't hear that. There is still this very big divide between the Jewish journalistic community and the mainstream community and all minority communities have their own, you know, insular media. Um, but I can give some recommendations of newspapers to follow. Um, my favorite has always been the Jewish Daily Forward. Um, it's a very old newspaper. It's over 100 years old. Um, it does really good reporting. Um, it has some kind of fun stories behind it today. It's pretty middle of the road, the Jewish version of the New York Times. But historically, it was a far left newspaper, which had a bust of Marx on the front of the building. And eventually that building had to be sold and it became luxury condos, oh which God. is just <laughs> the weirdest and most funny thing to me. <laughs> That's so bizarre. I know. Oh my God. The rich people who have to walk past that bust in on, on their way to into their houses. Right. Oh my gosh. Well, I kind of want to get on Allison's point about it seems kind of shocking in a way, even once you're aware of it, that Holocaust survivors are not included in our popular imagination of the air quotes greatest generation, which we won't even get into like the Tom Brokaw, Tom Hanks of it all. Like we will, but on a future episode. Um, but it's interesting to think like for your own, you shared that your own family history kind of got you into this topic. And obviously we've all been reading the Molly stories, which came out in 1986. So what would someone in your family, whether it's a sibling or so on, or I don't ask how old you are. I feel like it's a personal question, but I'm 34. I was going to say 33, literally forgot my own age. But, you know, what would people in school in the 1980s, maybe reading the Molly books at home, what would they be exposed to in school about the Holocaust? What would they have been had access to? Uh, likely pretty little. There, there is kind of a turning point in the mid 80s to early 90s of suddenly we're thinking we have to include this in history education. But there were no state mandates at that time, so it would have varied incredibly between if you're in a Jewish school, if you're in a public school, if your teacher happens to be a nerd about this topic, um, if your teacher happens to be Jewish and want to talk about this. Um, there was really no standardization. There was this generally today considered very terrible miniseries made in the late 1970s called The Holocaust, starring the one and only Meryl Streep. <laughs> um, 
don't watch it. It's <laughs> I've seen parts of it. It's not it's not good. Not her best work. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of Holocaust porn for want of a better word. Um but it did bring the Holocaust into popular consciousness um in some ways. So it, it would wouldn't have been unlikely that a child in that era would have maybe seen their parents watching it on TV. Um, hopefully their parents weren't sitting them down to watch it, but that's another discussion. Um, but it really wasn't until kind of the next decade with the creation of the U S Holocaust Memorial museum in 1993, that there started to be any kind of standardization in in the mid-1980s, it was all depending on your teacher. There's no one in my family who is in school at that point. My mom was born in the 60s, so she was, you know, in early college. And she does not remember having any significant Holocaust education in school. And she um, she grew up in Riverdale, which is a, a pretty Jewish community. And, for example, like, she had a Hebrew class in 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 school. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. She had three months in eighth grade. <laughs> <at the Hebrew. laughs> um, she also doesn't remember a time where she didn't have some kind of Holocaust knowledge. Hmm. It was just kind of in the air. Do you think the founding of the museum in 1993 and maybe the miniseries, are those kind of popular pivot points to like... There's a lot of stuff that happens in that 1993 it's like it's almost like the entire historical community tried to cram everything into 1993. Um, Spielberg releases um, Schindler's List, which is incredibly popular, um, and the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum is created in D.C. And there's tons of publicity and funding around that. And importantly, too, Spielberg uses a lot of the proceeds from Schindler's List for um, Holocaust education sources such as the um, USC Shoah Foundation, which is one of the major groups collecting survivor testimony. Um, So it's this really big shift to kind of public focus and also in terms of education, some kind of standardization, like trying to create some curriculums, trying to pass initiatives to require Holocaust education. Um, but that has been very slow going. It's only required in 11 states. Um, and there's not much standardization as to what information is being given in the curriculums of those 11 states. When you talk about that point in the early 90s too, you know, when you think of what's happening around that same time in South Africa with truth and reconciliation, I I think a sort of cynical view of the United States is that with something like President Clinton ends up apologizing for Japanese internment, you know, sorry doesn't get your land back, right? Like sorry and a small paycheck. We won't even talk about stimulus checks, but like sorry and a small paycheck, like doesn't bring back your loved ones, doesn't bring back your childhood. And in some ways it's like not true recognition or reconciliation yeah and there was during this period also between germany and israel there were starting to be a lot of um discussions about reparations um and 
reparations in terms of the Holocaust have been somewhat effective. Um, it's certainly one of the reasons I would support reparations as a concept, but it's still not real healing in a lot of ways. It might make sure that most survivors get fed, but it isn't even doing that all the time. There are a lot of survivors in Eastern Europe who have never been able to access that kind of stuff. There's a lot more that goes into that reconciliation process than just sorry and a check. So when you think about how we first started getting stories told about the Holocaust and its history, particularly those aimed at children, where do you see major pivot points? Like, can you tell us what you think are significant contributions to this emerging, what, what I think now is understood as a genre of its own? Yeah, um, I would say probably one of the biggest authors for children in terms of this is Jane Yolen. Um, she has a background in kind of retelling fairy tales. And in 1988, she released um, The Devil's Arithmetic, which was um, quite graphic, um, but also extremely popular, popular enough that it was actually made into a movie with Kirsten Dunst. Oh, my. Yeah. It's also not a good movie. It's not. I was just going to ask if you've seen it. I have seen it. So we should. We can check never that out. escape her on this podcast. Kirsten Dunst, like she's everywhere. Yeah, and she like emerges. She pops up. I mean, she's like ducking and rolling through every age group. Like, there's never like she was a child actor. She made that transition to adulthood. She's yep. Mary Antoinette. It's like, what is this? She won't stop. No, <laughs> she will not stop. Yeah, and it's a it's a time travel book and. It kind of has um, an interesting moral argument about remembering that remembering is like the most important thing you can possibly do almost. And there's definitely a lot of children's literature from kind of the mid eighties on that's starting to make that argument. And it starts to become more ubiquitous, like that, children's authors who are very well known and maybe have never written anything else about this topic like Lois Lowry will release a book like Number the Stars. There's a lot of star motifs in all of these um, titles but there's still not a lot of agreement among authors about what is representable. You have books that oversimplify and over um, sanitize the Holocaust, such as the bane of every Holocaust scholar's existence, the boy in the striped pajamas. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I've, I have not engaged that myself, but I have heard so much derision for it. So I'd love to kind of hear kind of what's going on with that. It is one of the most popular books for teachers to use, okay. and it is the book that scholars would like you to use least. <laughs> wow. Okay. Why? What's going on? So it is a book that is centering the story of the child of a commandant of an unnamed camp that's pretty much meant to be Auschwitz. And it has some basic factual inaccuracies, probably, you know, the biggest being that we have descriptions of what growing up as the commandant's child was like because the commandant of Auschwitz raised his children in a house outside the camp. And oh they God. 
are still living um, as of several decades ago. They talked openly about their experiences. So the information is there. And some of the things they remember are kind of almost comparable to um, children of plantation owners where the house staff were prisoners from the camp and where the mother got very angry if any of the prisoners came too close to the children. Um, Their upper story windows were a bubble glass so that the children couldn't go upstairs and look into the camp. And their movements were highly controlled. They were not going to wander off. That it, it just wasn't going to happen. And they, it wasn't, it wasn't a secret that something was happening in the camp. Um, they were quite young at the time, so they don't have perfect memories, but they don't remember being completely blind to it. No child is. And they do remember there being specific attempts to hide what was happening from them. And also that there was specific um, degradations of prisoners within their own household. And so this idea that the child of a commandant could just wander up to the fence and talk to a child prisoner wouldn't have happened. Um, Not only on the commandant's child side, but if a child prisoner or any prisoner came that close to the fence, they would be shot. There were lots of guards. There weren't any parts that weren't guarded. There was, um, you can still see it today, there's a big section of two barbed wire fences with an area in between, and most of the perimeter of most of the camps were mined. Um, so, for example, after the during the uprising in Sobibor, prisoners who got out of the fence, um, many were killed by landmines crossing the field into the forest. Um, so it's just in, in every way wildly inaccurate. And it also centers the life and the death of a non-Jewish child. Um, at the end of the book, the boy climbs under the fence, puts on a prisoner uniform, and goes to play with the child prisoner, and they're both killed in a gas chamber. That's the end of the book? That's the end of the book. Oh, my God. Yeah. And it's kind of the most problematic thing you could think of. (laughs) I'm sorry. I didn't know that was the plot. That was the twist. He's the boy, like, the boy in the striped pajamas ends up being a Nazi child. So it's like the. I'm I sorry. Like, I'm not okay right now. I've also seen in the I've movie. He's played by Professor Lupin. Yes. Oh uh huh. <laughs> As you're talking, though, I feel like we can understand why that narrative is so compelling to certain people because it's this vehicle for innocence, right? Like nobody knew, right? Like nobody knew, nobody. Like I think, yeah. I think without and it's a sanitization. It is. And I think, you know, part of what you educated me on and what you sent us to is much like there was a green book that enabled Black people to travel to understand where they would be safe or where they wouldn't meet with violence. The same existed within Jewish communities. And I think 
you know, we don't point out the lack of this coverage in Molly just to feel smug or to say like this book in 1986 didn't get it. But to say like, why might some people, myself included, have been educated to think that people didn't know certain things or that people were innocent? Um, I just have to ask, like, who got you, Molly? Um, Molly was actually my sister's. Oh, okay. And oh, great for for this discussion. It was my dad's mom who got um, Emma Molly. Um, I come from a mixed family. So my dad's side isn't Jewish and my mom's is. And so she came from the non-Jewish side. Interesting. And that grandmother remembers much more a similar childhood to Molly's. Is that weird for you as an adult to be thinking back on this? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, particularly when we, when I looked at uh, some of the peek into the pasts, because I loved the peek into the pasts. And now as a historian, it's just almost headache inducing. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Because that was, I think, for Allison, I probably the most frustrating piece of Molly in regards to Holocaust history was there was just some wild throwaway statements. Like, first of all, it was barely referenced. And then when it was, it the references, as you point out in your notes that you shared with us, are kind of the sources of the greatest misinformation in some ways about the Holocaust. That was, that was um, really shocking to me as well. Um, yeah, and there were some things that were just flat out incorrect. Like... Um, there was one thing that really struck me actually from the peak into the past of Brave Emily, where they were talking about child refugees in the kinder transport. And they write, um, most were Jewish children who had lost their parents because of Nazi Germany's violence towards Jews. And what's really uncomfortable about that is that isn't true. These children weren't orphans for the most part when they were taken to Britain, they would become orphans. Wow. So, I mean, how do you explain this? Is it just they didn't do the, like the research wasn't where it should have been or, you know, scholars weren't taking this up on that level yet or? I think it's more the need to sanitize for a child audience and to not make the allies look bad. Because if you look into the the history of the Holocaust, the Allies look pretty bad <laughs> um, in a lot of ways, especially um, before the war, but after the war as well. And it's uncomfortable to think about. And particularly the Molly books have this real kind of happy attitude towards the Allied armies and the policy towards... Jewish refugees and towards the Holocaust doesn't fit with that in any way. Hmm. And it's also, I think that um, it's correctly assuming that many of the presumably non-Jewish children will not have heard about this and that the audience, it is the same way that a lot of times we see something um, about um, any other minority um, in the U.S., probably the most common is anytime white people talk about Martin Luther King Jr., um, you see this writing for the kind of 
mainstream white Christian American audience and not for um, a minority group that you're writing about. Something I think you really brilliantly pulled out from Brave Emily, Molly's World, and the one peek into the past where this is mentioned is the way that language is used very selectively. And just to like kind of, you know, touch on just a few very quick examples in the final book of the Molly series, Peek into the Past, there's a sentence, millions of people were murdered in Nazi concentration camps. And there's very similar language in Brave Emily, um, children would be orphaned. Or, or sorry, no, like this this notion that they just are orphaned. Um, and I think part of it is like this reluctance to put agency. And that's directly in contrast to Molly, who is like, we are doing it all. Like the exchange that she has, she's like, we are doing it. We're winning and, the war. And that Americans do everything. They're very helpful. Yeah. She, you know, has that whole kind of speech to Emily about how great the American army is and how (laughs) weak the British army is, I know. Um, Yeah, and it's this extremely selective use of language where you're not defining what any of this means. And I think one thing that is often brought up with this is that, like, well, you can't be too graphic for children, but it's almost scarier to just have this amorphous millions of people were murdered in concentration camps. You don't define what a concentration camp is. You don't define the differences between any of these camps. You don't define who the victims were or why they were victimized or how or what things could have been done to potentially prevent it. Um, or the work that can be done now to move us further away from attacking each other based on, you know, various different identities. It's just this kind of vague, and this happened, and this happened too, because we have to have one sentence about it. I think something that's like emerging from this conversation for me is this feeling of frustration at how unsuccessful it's been for this genre to kind of hit home. At least one of the themes you referenced in the early Holocaust books for children was the theme of remembrance, of not forgetting. And yet then when you brought us to what to me is now a traumatic story of the boy in the striped pajamas, I don't know if I'll ever forget whatever this book was about. There's this theme of like this forced reunion or like not to like go there, but you know, like there's good actors on both sides, basically. So you can kind of draw a straight line of how we got to in some ways where we are now. How is it that we keep forgetting when so much effort has gone into remembrance? Yeah, it's a really difficult question. And it gets down to a lot of the problems in Holocaust education, but also the problems in history education more broadly, where it's not connecting with people well enough that they retain it, that they remember, and that history education is always political. So any history education that's writing a, there's two sides to every story when it comes to something like the Holocaust or American slavery or the American genocides against Native Americans, it all is intensely political and it changes how people think about these atrocities and it sanitizes the atrocities. I think there's also just like the absence of humans 
you know, like the choice to make Emily a British girl is, is a choice. Yes. There were things that were in, that were happening in all of the kind of peek into the past and um, welcome to Molly's world that I was looking at that kind of was not identifying, not identifying terms, not identifying people. And that's a big thing in a lot of Holocaust education is currently really moving away from that. We're just going to show these photos of these masses of victims, these completely nameless, unidentifiable, horrifying looking images of bodies um, where the people are given no agency in anything. Um, and I think one of the things that really struck me with this, like not remembering, not naming was there was a picture in welcome to Molly's world of a young girl, um, who's very clearly juxtaposed with a, with a drawing of Molly and Mm. there's no caption on her photo. There's, Mm. it's just showing that she's wearing a yellow star patch. And the thing is, she's not a nameless victim. We know who she was. She was a young girl named Hannah Lehrer. Um, She was about Molly's age and she was killed in 1941 in Riga, Latvia. And how much more powerful is it if you give her a name? And how disturbing is it is if you take a child who was murdered and take away her identity? In some ways, like... I'm wondering how you see the Diary of Anne Frank as a counter here. The fact that she stands in for all women or all girls in the Holocaust, has that been helpful or harmful in terms of like thinking with this history? Yeah, I think it kind of is somewhere in between. Her writing is extraordinarily compelling. She was a wonderful young writer, but we don't have almost any of her Holocaust experiences. If you look at her diary, it is entirely the period where she was in hiding and she was experiencing certain things um, such as being aware of deportations aware of the dangers that they were facing being you know deeply afraid of nazi soldiers but she still had an expectation of survival um, because she was in hiding and because she was in hiding in a circumstance that is almost unprecedented the kind of, you know, hiding in multiple rooms where you can move is not what hiding looked like to most to most people who survived in hiding. There are testimonies of people who um, had to relearn to walk after they were in hiding because they were in an extremely p- cramped space, so their legs atrophied. Um, and most people hid in multiple locations. Most people hid outdoors for a period of time. Um, Many people had traumatic experiences of hiding where um, they were having to um, use what little money they had to buy a place in hiding or where they were being um, starved or abused by the person they were who was hiding them or where they were denounced by the person who was hiding them. And so she was writing in kind of extraordinary circumstances and circumstances that were very much not normal for a Jewish girl in hiding. And then because she is discovered and arrested and deported, we get none of the rest of her Holocaust story. We get none of 
most of her Holocaust story. And many of the lines that are so um, often repeated, like, I still believe in spite of everything that people are really good at heart. I have a feeling she probably wasn't thinking that when she was dying in Belzen. Um, and it's, um, it's a big lack that we don't have the rest of her story because she could have written a great story. Um, and we know that, that she would have written incredible things had she survived. Um, but she didn't. And the writings we have of her are not always put in the context of then she doesn't survive. And these are the things that we know happened happened to her. And then it's just kind of blank. And there often isn't given the counter of, we can't hear what she would have written, but we can hear what this other person did write, who did survive. And we see sometimes even more kind of editing of her writing with things like the 1950s play, which takes out much of the meat of what she wrote and most of her Jewishness as well. And so it's kind of, it's not really a good or a bad, it's a how it's used. And it's often used quite poorly, in my opinion, because it's a very rich text and it can be used in a lot of interesting ways. And often it's just kind of sanitized. We had someone write to us um, because we had talked a bit about representation and and like rounding out stories. And a book that we both recently read was a reimagining of Phyllis Wheatley Peters's life and giving her joy and and different moments of connection and not just focusing on her status as an enslaved person who writes. And one of the questions that we got was how people can learn about other experiences through literature and maybe some of your recommendations of books that aren't necessarily centered on trauma, right? So people can properly educate themselves about events such as the Holocaust, but also just experience other things. I'm I'm also, I'm afraid to ask you this. I love Alice Hoffman books and I'm afraid you're going to tell me they're not very good. I don't know if I've actually read any. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. Oof. Cause there's so, yeah. Oh, <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> you're safe they, for now until oh. I read some. Um, <laughs> they, they deal with a lot of things that are, are close to what you study. And there are a lot of elements of magic and mysticism. And she has written a few books that are, that are around the time of the Holocaust with Jewish protagonists. And there's a lot about ghosts and magic. So Ooh, it's like, while I, I have, have Leah, okay. It's like, while I, I have Leah should, on the line, yeah. I should ask, but also if you told me like, throw them all away, I'm running to my bookshelf right now. Like <laughs> Leah has told me they are not good, but I, I think people want to hear, you know, from, from someone who studies this, like, what should I read? And, and we get asked a similar question with like little house books, like, Okay, those have problems. So this episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're 
you're a creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. What should I read? I think it's about balancing like Jewish joy with Jewish trauma. Um, And we see this in, you know, many, many other scholars of various different groups have have said similar things. Um, And I think probably my all-time favorite children's books with Jewish characters is the All of a Kind Family books. They're for kind of around the same age group as the American Girl books. They're about five sisters living in the Lower East Side in the early 1900s. And it's really centering their experiences as Jewish children, and importantly, in a Jewish majority environment where they're experiencing um, just kind of living a normal life. They're not experiencing any significant anti-Semitism. And I think that's kind of an important part of reading any stories that center like Jewish joy. There are a lot of really wonderful picture books. I am a big fan of children's literature in all of its forms. Um, And there are a lot of really wonderful picture books that cover Jewish holidays, that talk about Jewish languages. There's one that I cannot remember the title to. Wait, no, I think it's Golda Stands Strong which is about Golda Meir as a child (laughs) collecting um, school books for children who didn't have them. It's a really, it's a really cute book. And then in terms of books that do talk about the Holocaust, one of my favorites to, for example, kind of put as a other end to um, the diary of Anne Frank is um, Rivka's diary. It's spelled a little bit, um, strangely strangely for american eyes it's r y w k a um and she was a uh polish jewish um young girl in the Wodz ghetto and her diary was actually discovered in auschwitz and the book that her diary is published in is very good because it contextualizes each of her diary entries um her diary itself is quite short. It only covers a small period of time, though actually the same period of time as the Molly books, which was a very interesting thing to look at of like, this is when this thing is happening in the Molly books. And I'm using this book right now with my um, students. Um, I teach at a a Hebrew school and it's interesting to look at the two extraordinary extremes but her diary is contextualized within a broader Holocaust history, um, which is very important. And then in terms of other books, I do really like Number the Stars. It has the problematic thing of being from a non-Jewish perspective, but it's still a really good book. Um, It's just really (laughs) well-written and it's quite historically accurate for the most part. It's such an enormously broad genre that it's almost hard to pick like a couple, but 
one of my favorites very much for an adult audience that I'm writing um, my thesis on partially is some of the writing by Cynthia Ozick. She primarily writes short stories, but her her stories often talk about women's experiences and particularly experiences that aren't written about a lot. Uh, for example, things like sexual violence. And then another that I'm using for my thesis is this extremely strange book called A Blessing on the Moon, which is a um, story told from the perspective of a ghost who has, or potentially someone just kind of in the afterlife-esque place. It's kind of telling a Jewish afterlife story from a Holocaust victim. Hmm. And some of the interesting things about that is that it's um, it makes a lot of references to older Jewish folklore and legend. Um, and it's also a place where the Holocaust victim is not an angel. He's like, he's in, in life, you get the feeling that he was kind of a schmo. Um, and like in death, he maybe does some unethical things too. But it really is humanizing in a lot of ways to see someone who isn't like perfect Mm. i'm kind of wondering like on the flip side we have a lot of parents who listen to the show and people who also are interested in reading about these topics what are some books or movies to absolutely avoid the boy in the striped pajamas definitely could have guessed Um, that one i guess yeah could have guessed that one i would avoid most things that edit the diary of anne frank i would avoid most things written from the perspective of a non-Jew. And let's see, are there any other big glaring ones? I would be really careful about use of photographs. Um, That's something that's really important to me in terms of Holocaust education is that photographs, especially atrocity photographs, can be both humanizing and dehumanizing and that's especially true for the kinds of photographs we have um, from the holocaust that show like masses of victims i think wherever you can get a photo that is contextualized where like we know who the person was and we know their story um and that's something that um the u.s holocaust memorial museum is a great resource for because they have these id cards Um, that they've created of a specific person with their portrait and exactly what happened to them in, you know, a really brief kind of document. But anything that is centering a story that is something that someone can connect with on a human level, something that also tells more than kind of the... um, the most common kind of snapshots of the Holocaust. We often get stories in Auschwitz. We often get stories of people who um, escaped prior to the war. Um, We often get um, stories that are kind of from the perspective of a young child who may not completely understand what's going on. And there are a lot of resources of adults who did know what was going on 
there are many, many, many diaries, many autobiographies, and most survivor testimonies are free and readily available on the internet. And then kind of showing a more diverse image of what the Holocaust looked like, not only in terms of that there were an array of Jewish victims, but an array of other civilians targeted by the Nazis and an array of ways that they were targeted and places they were targeted. One of the things that um, we often get is, for example, like in um, the Dear America books, the story of the Holocaust story that they have is a young girl who comes over in 1938 who's Austrian. And there are so many, especially for children, um, stories that focus on German and Austrian children because it's like that's where Hitler was. But the majority of Holocaust victims were not German Jews. They were um, elsewhere. And I think it's especially important to look at the areas where in many ways the Holocaust really was successful. In, in terms of what the Nazis wanted to do. Um, there were many areas in Eastern Europe where death rates were over 90%. Um, and there really is no Jewish community in any way left. And I think also talking about what happened before and what happened after can be as important as talking about during. And especially talking about what the allies failed to do both before and after. I went to the memorial when I was very young and I still have my card. Yeah. I, it was like, like it was yesterday. I, I, when I'm asked like most impactful museum experience, I don't say that a lot because I don't want to tell that story. Cause it really was very, very impactful. Well, yeah. And, and I think, I mean, it should, it should be, right? If someone had, in a cavalier way, handed me that card and said, have fun, Allison, you're eight. I hope you have a great day at this memorial. They're not doing their job, but I still remember it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're, um, I think what's really nice about them is they're well-made enough that they can last a long time mm-hmm. um, if you get them there. And they're also, you can print them out. Um, at home, which is great. So you mentioned that most people don't talk about what happened after. Can you kind of tell us a little bit for our listeners about Mm -hmm. the failures of what happened after? Yeah. So um, I'm going to find my my notes. This was something that I talked about in terms of um, some of the things that were written in the the peek into the past for changes for Molly, I believe. And it had this, you know, kind of, again, cavalier statement of after the war, refugees, people whose homes were destroyed, still didn't have food, clothing or places to live. And whole cities were rebuilt in the U.S., helped with this thing. And that's mostly the story of British refugees in Britain and German refugees. The story of Holocaust survivors is a lot darker and more complicated in terms of kind of the broader groups that were targeted by the Nazis, the the law, paragraph 175, which criminalized male homosexuality, was still on the books for another few decades. So the men who had survived concentration camps and also people who would now most likely identify as trans women, um, who had survived concentration camps after being arrested under paragraph 175, 
were often rearrested and their records were not expunged. Most of them were not able to talk about their experiences. Most of them were not able to find jobs or homes. And most of them never talked about their experiences. Similar things were true for the Roma and Sinti communities, which were decimated. And the racism against them remained to a point where they attempted to rebuild their communities, but it was very slow. And they were able to, for the most part, rebuild their communities in Europe, but it was a slow and painful process that didn't happen quickly and was not supported by any allied government. Um, It was all them doing it by themselves for the most part. And in terms of Jewish survivors, in the very last few months of the war, the Germans engaged in death marches where they marched people from um, areas closest to the Russian lines into the heart of Germany. So people who had been imprisoned in Auschwitz, um, people imprisoned in slave labor camps in other parts of Poland and um, Lithuania um, and other parts of Eastern Europe um, were marched into Germany. And this was something that kind of overflowed most of the older concentration camps. So Dachau, um, Bergen-Belsen, Buchenwald, et cetera. And there were huge crises at liberation in most of these camps. Even though the Allies often had information, in some cases, such as the case of Dachau, even the general area of where this camp was, the soldiers liberating the camps who were, you know, these weren't generals, these were 18-year-old boys, weren't prepared in any way. Most of them could not communicate with the liberated prisoners. Um, Many of them, their first reaction was to try and give food and water. And there were many liberators who, in testimony, describe part of their trauma being that they gave these prisoners food and the prisoners ate and died. Um, Because if you give someone something like... (laughs) the high calorie, high fat rations that you're giving soldiers who maybe hasn't eaten anything in a few weeks, which was often the case, it will cause an electrolyte imbalance and they will pass. There are also in survivor testimony discussions of people who had been very close to death, but who were kind of pushing on because they had heard liberation was close who, when liberation happens, they just kind of let go. So these young American soldiers have no idea how to care for these people. Um, Even the medics have no idea how to care for these people. And then if you look into the British context, um, the British liberate, the largest camp that they liberate is Bergen-Belsen, and they liberate it in the middle of a typhus epidemic. And they liberated at a point where thousands of people are dying a day and they really don't have any treatment for typhus at that point. The antibiotic that treats it wasn't invented for another 10 years, so they couldn't do much. And so the liberation itself was traumatic for everyone involved. And then the aftermath of liberation was that most Jewish survivors couldn't return to their homes. 
and not necessarily because their homes had been bombed, often because their homes had been stolen by neighbors and their possessions and everything else had been stolen by neighbors. And in 1946, um, a group of Jews who had attempted to return to the Polish city of Kielce were um, attacked in a blood libel pogrom and about 50 were killed and about 40 more were injured. This is of about 100 Jews who had returned to this city. And after that happened, most Jews pretty much gave up on staying in Eastern Europe Um, This was also, of course, when the Soviet Union was setting up government in Eastern Europe and they didn't want to stay in a Soviet-occupied area. Um, And so people who had been in Poland came into British and American-occupied zones in Germany and everyone who had been marched from elsewhere was in kind of these areas in Germany And what the American and British armies did was set up uh, displaced persons camps, which are the precursor to modern refugee camps. They often built these on the site of the concentration camps. So there was Bergen-Belsen displaced persons camp, which was built um, right outside the actual area of the concentration camp. Um, And this happened in many, many other concentration camps. So Holocaust survivors were still living behind barbed wire, behind guards, often in the same places that they had been liberated from. And this didn't only last for a short period of time. The last DP camps were closed in 1956. Oh my God. Yeah. And part of the reason for that was that neither the British or the Americans, yet again, were going to accept large numbers of Jewish refugees. And the British were still, in 1945, um, in colonial control of British Mandate Palestine, and were still not allowing any kind of large-scale Jewish immigration there either, which was where most of these survivors wanted to go. I've actually been to a, not a DP camp, but a um, immigrant, an illegal immigrant detention camp that was set up by the British um, outside of Haifa in, I believe, the mid-1930s called Athlete, and was meant to hold mostly Holocaust survivors who had illegally attempted to immigrate uh, most on these like secret boats run by like Jewish resistance movements during and after the war. And the conditions were, you know, exactly how you would imagine a refugee camp, both in the DP camps in Europe and in the detention camps around the British mandate. People were um, sprayed with DDT um, to get rid of lice. Of course, we now know DDT is a serious carcinogen. They were often ordered to separate men and women, to get undressed, to shower en masse, sounding familiar. 
Yeah. And you can imagine that this was angering and terrifying to most survivors. And they, you know, in both detention camps and in DP camps, they still were in barracks. They still had no privacy. And yet at the same time, they were creating the beginnings of a post-Holocaust world. If you look at the DP camps in the years after the war, they had the highest birth rate in the entire world. People were getting married and having babies absolutely constantly. And they were trying whatever they could to try and get out of these camps. But because of immigration restrictions up until 1948, it was basically impossible um, for most people. The there were still very small quotas for Jewish immigration to the U.S. and to Britain. And the camps only began to empty out when um, Israel declared independence in 1948 and immediately took in basically everyone. There was still a great deal of anti-Semitism in, um, in Europe, in the U.S., in the U.K., and people were kind of left to fend for themselves in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think talking to you, you know, like whenever we talk to people and we finish the books and we go different directions with it, it's like sometimes we're describing what we do and people say, oh, so you have a doll podcast. We say, yeah, you know, and you have dolls with you here today. Like we have, yes. I mean, are there five dolls behind me? Yes. Yes, there are. But I think (laughs) including an Emily, but she's not here because now I'm angry at her book. But I think like, as you know, as you were just like so brilliantly talking about these things and you'd mentioned to us separately that you're involved with Ask Historians on Reddit, which I don't have the fortitude to do. I had to quit it after a week. But I I think about like we look at these books that have kind of like silly plot lines, right? Like Molly gets a puppy, but then also looking at like you're this brilliant, amazing person and you have this. No, you are like, you're amazing. And you have this spark and this amazingness with how you talk. And I'm not saying it's because of those stories, but it's like, wow, to live in a time where we were told your story matters, other people's story matters. And then you're looking and saying, well, I'm actually not in here. So, you know. Yeah. And the American Girl books were definitely like one of my first like introductions into history and like one of the ways that I got super into history and certainly into like dress history and that's one of my like like if I want to not think about the holocaust for a while that's where I go in terms of like historical study and I've even done I've even done some writing about like clothing during the holocaust it's definitely a thing where you also come back and you're like oh there was a lot that was not here or that was problematic. And yeah, it's very interesting. And I'm of course very happy that we now have Rebecca. She came a little bit after I was into my, I'm a teenager. I'm too cool for this phase, but I definitely want one now. And we have all of her books. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, I'm kind of wondering, you kind of touched on this, but how do you sort of take care of yourself as a professional who's studying 
really heavy trauma and doing this really important work of restoring a lot of these narratives and these histories. How do you like, how do you pivot to moments of joy? Is it fashion history? You know, what are the things you can do for yourself? Um, I play Webkins. Oh my God. I love that. What is, what is a, like, just imagine some listener. I don't know who like, doesn't oh my god! Know. I only know about this because I babysat my cousin who's a decade mm-hmm. younger than me, yeah. and she was obsessed with these. Yeah, not so our, it's not from our time. Allison. I am a late '90s baby. Okay, um, so I was introduced to the internet in about 2008, and one of the ways I was <laughs> wow! Oh my god! You're making us feel so old. I can't even okay, tell Leah, you. Okay, Leah, that's a wrap. Thanks, Leah. End of the episode. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> I feel like I want to be like I'm like Lady. I'm like Violet. I'm like what is a webkin? kind of are they are um they are stuffed animals that came with codes that you typed into a website and you got an online pet and you could dress and feed and design their weird little pet houses so is it like a more developed tamagotchi yes except they can't die they fixed that (laughs) are you impressed that i know what tamagotchi is do we get any cool points for that yes okay cool yes i I really wanted a Tamagotchi as a kid. My wife had one. And like, basically all I know about this is that she had to feed it aggressively on the bus to school because then you couldn't, you couldn't have it out at school. Right. And then, or it would die. So you had to like, make sure it was fed. So it didn't die during school question mark. Yeah. I had a very like low tech early upbringing. So we were not like told about things like Tamagotchis until I was like, in middle school and I think at that point I got like the cheapo knockoff called Littlest Pet Shop yes <laughs> Allison did you have that I had a Tamagotchi yeah you did and I attached it had a little clip I attached it to my little green baby backpack you would have oh been like God. a very I don't I think this was before your time but you carried absurdly small backpacks to remind everyone that you're effeminate even though you're seven Yes. Yes. These were still a thing when I was in high school and I was very confused um, because (laughs) we had a lot of books (laughs) and like papers and like notebooks and stuff. My God. And so I was very confused how these people did their schoolwork. I figured maybe they just didn't. We also didn't have lockers. Oh, important note for this. (laughs) Really? Yes. We had lockers in middle school, but none in high school. It was a very weird arrangement interesting i did not think we were like i didn't know where we were going i didn't think it was webkins yeah listen you never know with this show yeah and i believe you mentioned this on an earlier podcast but ruth goodman she and her living in strange just just casually putting in a linoleum floor for no big deal she carries those guys in every single one she's just like over here like i am the reason you're eating i also love when she's when she's at the women's institute and like there's actual women who have lived through the war and she's like excuse me uh no big deal but that canning procedure is not hygienic you're gonna kill us all ma'am she's like that's not sanitary step aside and you're like ruth and by that point in the episode, you're like, yes, you should step aside. Let Ruth do whatever she Have wants. Have you seen the wartime Christmas episode of that? Not yet. Not yet. Oh, there's caves. What? There's caves. 
So I thought we were pretty effusive about Ruth, my friend Ruth. The messages that we received in the wake of that episode, like three paragraph messages that were like, I don't think you fully comprehend the majesty Ruth. of Ruth Goodman. I was like, she's kind I'm of getting there. My queen. I yeah. want to be her when I grow up. Oh my God. Yeah. So I watch a lot of her like wartime farm victorian farm tudor farm okay and we didn't even know i didn't even know <laughs> that ruth took it to a tudor farm place and also a victorian farm place until we had a and excellent victorian listener. pharmacy excuse me there's sheep condoms <laughs> leaving it there listen <laughs> listen <laughs> how much are you gonna make me like almost kill myself on my seltzer this evening <laughs> All I can say is we had a very gracious listener send us a flash drive full of what I'll call questionably, like, downloaded episodes <laughs> of these shows with questionable mm-hmm. legality, obtained in ways that, like, we won't we won't investigate on her behalf. But I didn't think anything could top Ruth casually spying in her garden shed during the war, which, like, literally, like, it gets so much better. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm there's not, cheese I'm making. There's butter. Fun. There's, um... Remember when she made like a crock pot, like casually out of a box? And it was like, who asked? But also like, this is amazing. With like straw and stuff. Yeah. And then like you go further back and um, I think it's Alex Langlet or it might be Peter Ginn. They're kind of interchangeable. Um, One of them tries to spawn salmon and just ends up falling in a lake. Um, fantastic where do you think ruth's like home base is historical period wise like where do we see the real roof like where, where does she live i i want to say either tudor or victorian she's like interesting like the less technology there is the more she shines but like she shines anywhere as well she's a beautiful hero like if only we could get her on this show like i don't know if she would do it because of the technology involved like she might reject it but she might be like we need to do it over like like if i brought like a cassette tape or like an acetate or like a phonograph yes an edison tube an edison tube beautiful i mean like we'll see what we can do i don't know there might be a kickstarter allison's like no that's not happening we've peaked with leah i mean like yeah but look if we get ever get connected to ruth like we will hook you up like we'll be like listen her like her her like signature would be bigger than like anyone else's really wow pretty much i love her we get it we really do wow so Leah, like we often have people now that we know that you're interested in ruth like maybe you would want to receive things via pigeon or via morse code but if people did have follow-up questions or if they had a connect to ruth is there a way that you would want people to get in touch with you i am not the world's best on social media but my most active social media is instagram and i'm at peculiar leah i'm i believe the same on ask historians as well very and i think i have a twitter but i don't check it regularly (laughs) Thank you for your honesty. I respect that. Yes. Um, Now, Allison, if people would love to get in touch with you to ask some tough questions about the fate of your Tamagotchis (laughs) and or your small backpack, where might people find you? I I know where my small backpack is, but uh, I am at Allison Horrocks on both Twitter and Instagram. 
and Mary, if people have more insights from Victorian pharmacy or perhaps recipes or receipts, where should they find you? Listen, pump your brakes on the recipes. (laughs) I don't know if that's going to happen for me, but if you would like to record yourself on a cassette tape and then play it back backwards on a vinyl record, record that again and send it to me as a voice DM on Instagram. My handle is at Mimi Mahoney there. You can also find me on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123. I do genuinely love hearing from people, including if you would like to just you know, vibe out about Ruth. Like we're here for that. We understand it. We get it. Please do not message me about this boy in the stray pajamas book or movie. I'm not prepared to speak about that probably ever again. Just being honest with both of you. Can't do it. Yeah. Professor Lupin really let us down with being in that movie. He sure did. Oh my God. Um, But all to say, this has been such a, like, wonderful conversation. I mean, I feel like when we were talking about the Molly books, we felt this absence of information throughout and you've just come along and, you know, like shared your time and your talent and we so appreciate you. So thank you for that so much. Thank you so much for having me. I had weirdly a lot of fun researching for this, (laughs) um, but that's just me. (laughs) We appreciate your time so much. We do. And Ruth, if you're out there, just call us, please. Just call it. Thank you. you. Just call us. We do. We do love you. Thank you.